0: This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our real-time history videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series, 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45, on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash real-time history podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show.
1: Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Channel podcast. I think we're approaching episode 30.
0: Seems like just
1: yesterday we began. Yeah, and today I have a feeling I'm saying that more and more. Today we are visiting a region which I have no clue about. If I'm perfectly honest. Yeah, I had some
0: general knowledge about Central Asia in the Russian Civil War, but I'm also going to be quite honest. It's not like I could whip up an episode on it just off the top of my head. So, uh, like many of the topics that we do. So what we did is we worked with someone who does know quite a bit about the region, who specializes in asymmetrical warfare of the kind that was going on there during the Russian Civil War and afterwards, Sam Amen, who helped us put the episode together and who is also our guest on the podcast today to answer
1: some of your questions and some questions from Flo and I. Exactly. And as it turned out, Sam also has a podcast about asymmetrical warfare, which is a super relevant topic for us. Um, So in the future, there is a good chance a certain Jesse Alexander, you might have heard about him. I hear he's a stand-up guy. I don't know. That's the word on the street. uh, Will appear as a guest in Sam's podcast. So not only for that, but uh, generally, you know, if you're interested in asymmetrical warfare and who isn't who isn't it it is the the flavor
0: of the day uh both in the post cold war world and in the post world
1: war one world so there you go super relevant topic so definitely check out sam's podcast if you want to ask questions to our guests or also to us uh, for the podcast feel free to do so if you want to send them to us you can become a patreon patreon.com slash the great war and we are going to be happy to either forward them to the people who can answer them or answer them ourselves. So without further ado, here is the interview. All right, so I'm very happy to welcome
0: our guest to the Great War podcast today, Sam Ammon. Uh, Sam is an independent researcher and is the host of another podcast called The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. And I guess that's a pretty relevant podcast if one is interested in the Russian civil war in Central Asia. So uh, thank you very much, Sam, for joining us and talking to us today.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: All right. So let's jump in with a bit more of a personal question. So how, and I want to say here in the heck, but let's just go with how did you get interested in the Russian Civil War and or in Central Asia? Because I guess to say the least, it's not really a mainstream type of focus within a conflict that is not necessarily a mainstream focus in the Russian Civil War. So what led you to all this?
2: Yeah, it's a Bit of a circular journey, um, and honestly, it's a combination of the Central Asian drug trade and um, Hamid Ismailov's newest book, uh, *The Devil's Dance*. So, um, I went to UChicago for under for graduate school, and I focused on insurgencies and things of that nature. And so, one of the papers I had to write was how the state can benefit from criminal and terrorist activities. So, naturally, I thought of Afghanistan and the opium trade, and Pakistan, and the um, how the spy agencies benefit from that. And that led me kind of down this wormhole of the other Central Asian states, such as Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, that have a huge play in that kind of conflict and their role in the U.S.'s uh, US war on terror. And it just it opened up this whole new region to me that I had vaguely known about, but I really didn't know in detail. Um, and so I decided that I was going to kind of dive deep into this area. And what you quickly learn about Central Asia is it has like five different origin points. And so, um, trying to try and figure out like, what was the beginning of this region to help me get a sense of you know, what exactly I was dealing with um, leads me to Hamid Islamov's book. Because Hamid Islamov is a famous contemporary Uzbek writer. He's written for BBC for decades. He's written many books in Russian, Uzbek, and English. And he had published a book at the same time that I was writing my paper about Stalin's Great Terror and the el- elimination of the Jadid reformers in Uzbekistan. So, I read that book, and that book gave me a place and time to kind of focus my, my research. Um, and so now I am here uh,
0: talking to you. <laughs> All right. So I think the big takeaway here for me is drugs and books lead to interesting stuff, if, if I had to summarize that. Okay, oh, good. Um, right. Then let's, let's jump into the history. Let's get into the past here. Um, and we're going to start off with some questions from our Patreon supporters. And just a quick reminder to any listeners out there if you want to be able to ask questions to our uh, guests like Sam, you can do so if you become a patron of our channel. So the first question is about weapons, about armament. To what extent are surplus weapons and weaponry and supplies left over from the Great War itself making their way into the Russian Civil War and making their way into Central Asia, which is on the periphery, even, of the Russian Civil War?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a fascinating question, and I think it does a lot to highlight Central Asia's um, unique position within the Tsarist Russian Empire during World War I, and then later what becomes uh, the Soviet region um, during the Civil War. During World War One, Central Asia is kind of untouched. The um, indigenous people, they are exempt from conscription until 1916. You do have some forces encouraging in this region, like you have um, the Turkish campaigns. They're in Baku, I think, 1917 ish, I think. Um, so there's some hope that maybe Turkey's going to be involved in that region amongst the Muslim people within Central Asia. You have dumpster Force, who I think is in Afghanistan at some point, but it doesn't really enter this region. Um, and so you don't have kind of like the leftovers of like, maybe you would have on the Somme or something like that. And then the other interesting aspect of this is that the Russian settlers were able to have weapons and had brought it with them as they were settling the closet plans, but the central Asians were not allowed to have weapons legally. So you do have this disparity by the time the revolution happens where the Russian settlers are armed to the teeth and the um, indigenous people are in a situation where it's whatever they can get their hands on. And we see this uh, with the Basmachi, who mostly rely on sabers and antiquated sidearms and rifles like the Burden rifles of the Russo-Turkish War. And even when Fuens arrives with his army and he tries to create a Turkistan front, um, which basically just means grabbing whoever's in the region and throwing them into the army and, you know, saying that you're part of the Red Army now. He's complaining to Lenin that his people don't have uniforms, they don't have shoes, they're using burning rifles, whatever remains of weapons that the English were able to send the Russians during World War One, It's not in great uh, condition. So you have this situation where it's basically make do what you have and duct tape. All right, so let's switch uh,
0: now from the sharp end to a bit more of a political question. Now, to what extent does the first Congress of the Comintern have an impact on the civil war, and do the whites have any kind of programs to try to counter it and attract some of the different Central Asian ethnic groups to maybe support the white cause?
2: So the role of the Comintern in Central Asia is interesting because when um, the Bolsheviks are starting to seize power, they do make a bunch of speeches about how like, colonialism is just, you know, the bastard child of capitalism and it allows capitalism to survive because it just exploit colonies. So they do, they do a huge push to try and speak to their Muslim brother, brethren. They actually, I think they do a speech 1919, 1918, uh, addressed to the Muslim people of the Russian empire. Essentially um, Asia isn't the only place where you have a large Muslim population, um, but it's not really till the second common turn that we see them in their own minds and their own ideological battlefield. Do they really start turning to Central Asia? Um, and this is because they're starting to realize that you're not going to have a communist uprising in Germany, or even France, or some of the more industrialized Western areas. So they figured Europe's loss, let's go to Asia. And for some reason, they have this in their heads where Turkestan is going to be like the first domino, basically. And if we can turn Turkestan, then we'll have this great renaissance of communism in, um, in Asia. So they, um, they pick up where the currency provisional government left off. So currency had actually made all Central Asians official citizens of Russia, which they had not been before. So they continue that practice. Um, they actually convene the first Congress of the Peoples of the East in Baku. So they're starting to offer um, you know, political positions and potentially power to Muslims in Russia. And then they start releasing like the secret treaties between the Allies, detailing how they were going to divvy up the Ottoman lands, which turns the Jadids a little bit against their original fascination with the, with the West. Um, so they're doing a lot to try and speak to... Their Muslim brethren, but it's kind of like a one step forward, two step back process because they still have this communist ideology, which you know doesn't work well with Islam. Um, There are obviously aspects of Central Asian society that they think is backwards, so it is this kind of you know welcome to our brotherhood, but you need to do X, Y, and Z to really qualify as communist. So it's a weird uh, relationship, but it's a lot better than what the whites are offering. Um, The white approach is basically we need men, so we're, if, if the Central Asians want to fight with us against the Bolsheviks, we'll welcome them, but we're not willing to talk about political autonomy, we're not willing to talk about you know, rights or anything like that, and um, I think we might get just a little bit later, but the Alash Orda are um, a great example of this. The Alash Orda was a deposit group, and they sided with the whites, um, and they, they had created an autonomous state, and they were trying to get the whites to agree that Once the Bolsheviks are defeated, the autonomous state would be respected. And so the white general um, basically says, we won't give you political autonomy, but we'll give you cultural autonomy, which is kind of what they had already had during the czarist administration. So... The Reds are uncomfortable, but they're trying, whereas the Whites are just constantly... Right. Well, that
0: sounds a little bit similar to some of the difficulties the Whites had in accepting uh, demands for autonomy for some other groups, including the Ukrainians and so on, that we've discussed um, in some previous episodes on the show about the Russian Civil War. All right. So we covered a bit about weapons. We've covered a bit about politics. Let's get down to money and resources and we have a question from one of our patreon supporters about oil and what is uh the role of oil in the russian civil war what's the situation with oil in central asia
2: yes this is a great question um and as you can imagine this this conversation of oil becomes central uh for this region late in the 20th century and into the 21st so at this point The Russians know that there's a small oil industry in the Kazakh steppes, which the Bolsheviks need. And so I think it also explains why instead of outright conquering the native people or the indigenous people, they choose the path of trying to convert them to communism and working with them. um, Because they don't have the resources right now to just do a power or a land grab, but they still need the resources. Um, So, um, yes, the oil is why they hold on to the steppes. And it also, I think this question reveals the real reason why the Bolsheviks are so determined to hold on to Central Asia. Because I know I, I'm certainly one of these people, and maybe some of our other listeners are like this. The, the Bolsheviks have so much to worry about right now. Why are you holding on to this mess of a region that's in the midst of you know five different civil wars amongst themselves? Why is this area so important? And it's because, like you said, the resources. Uh, they have a huge cotton industry in Uzbekistan that the czarist empire had um, started and the Soviets still need. There's a huge agricultural breadbasket within these within central Asia. Um, And like I said, the oil is very important. So it's even though the Bolsheviks are approaching the central Asians with this idea of white political autonomy, and this is a new political thought at the end of the day, they're really invested in this region um, because they need the resources. All right. So
0: comes down to the sinews of war, so to speak. Um, the next question that uh, we have is one about religion. So I think we're covering all our possible bases for conflicts here. Um, it's about religion. Now the region is, is and was at the time majority Muslim, but that's not quite the same as what we might associate with let's say, political Islam today from what I, I understand from the reading research that uh, you helped us with for this uh, Central Asia episode that we've put out. Um, what is the role of Islam in the various uprisings and civil strife that's happening in the region at the time?
2: This could be like an episode <laughs> in and of itself. <laughs> um, I, I think... Th- a key thing to understand and what makes this region so fascinating is that you really have two major conflicts going on. So one is obviously the Russian Civil War, the whites and the reds, and where does Central Asia fit within that um, that, that war. But you also have this internal conflict amongst the um, indigenous people and amongst the indigenous Muslims themselves that have been going on for a very long time. And that's basically like, what is the, where does Muslim fit? Sorry, where does Islam fit within the modern world. Um, And so for Central Asians, Islam is really a a factor that contributes or that drives the internal conflicts that we see. Uh, So for example, you have this very conservative strain within the region, which is uh, represented by the Basmachi, the Lama, the conservative members. For them, Islam is kind of the continuation of the status quo. We've done this a certain way for so many decades, centuries. The reformers and the Bolsheviks are threatening, um, and so Islam is is definitely a religious aspect. In sense, like they want to do Islam a certain way, but it's also just a way to handle with the chaos that has been this region for so many years. Because you know, you have World War One, you have the Civil War, you had conflict before that because Great Russian game. settlers. Yeah, regain exactly. Um, so it becomes a stand-in for just like, we want things, we want, this is my stuff, and I want my stuff to stay the same, and I don't want to change. Um, but then, on the other hand, you have these reformers, whether it be the Jadids or the um, Alash ashborda who are saying, you know, no, like, the way we've been doing things isn't working. Um, they're not anti-Islam. I want to be very clear, they're not anti-Islam, not in nineteen twenty. Um, they'll become more anti-Islam as the Bolsheviks put more pressure on them following the Civil War. Uh, but at this point, they have, a lot of them have a strong Islamic background. Um, a lot of them went to the Madrasa schools, which are schools run by the ulama. They, they have family who are part of the religious caste. So they have a very strong religious background and they're still very Islamic. But from their perspective, Islam has been corrupted by the conservative members of society. And it needs to be reformed to fit a more modern age. Um, and a lot of them also have the ability because when Russia invades, um, they create a bunch of railroads, which allows, you know, people to travel easier from Central Asia to Russia, to Europe, even into Istanbul. The Russians also bring with them the newspapers and the printing press. And all of a sudden these um, intellectual, um, you know, Central Asians have access to information they wouldn't have before. And that's where you have a huge Turkish influence coming in because the Ottoman Empire is you know the only independent Muslim empire in the world at this point, and it's a huge um shining you know beacon of hope for a lot of these reformers because they're looking at Ottoman Empire, they're looking at the young Turks, they're saying, oh okay, so there is a way to be Islamic but also to to reform to fit the modern world um later, they'll look at Afghanistan it's Afghanistan its independence in 1919. so it's it, it's a I think it's a place for comfort for those who are displaced, but it's also a factor that leads to a lot of the conflict that we see because like the smachy hate the jadeeds because they, you know, practice a propped form of Islam. The jadeeds hate the smachy because they want to go back to a method that doesn't doesn't work. So it's, it's very complicated. And that's just like, you know, the, the bare surface of this. Right. And this is something we struggled
0: with when, uh, you know, we were working together to put together the episode, we want to be Mm -hmm. in depth, but you know, it has to still be digestible for everyone. So, if I'm hearing you right, the Coles Notes version, more or less, is there's a kind of, there are more conservative Muslims that get, that include the ulama, so kind of conservative religious elite that are allied with the local emirs of the, of the Emirates, for example. And you also have the sort of rural village conservative Basmachi rebels who want to kind of keep life the way it was. And then on the other side, you've got Muslim reformers looking to modernize in different ways. And those are kind of the Jadids and then the Kazakh uh, Alash Orda. Is that a fair kind of summary?
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the other thing to note is that this is not unique to Central Asia and it doesn't start like 1914 or even 1905 when the Alash Orda was created. This is part of a larger conversation that had been going on in Islamic, in the Islamic world um, and what's happening now as the Russian archives and the Uzbek and Kazakh archives are opening is that we're seeing this rich literature coming from a lot of these Qadid reformers talking about the complexities of Islam, um, which I think is just very interesting. So, at least in the U.S., I think we have a very static form of Islam, and it's not, it, it's this constant growing religion.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's still uh, a relevant uh, question in, uh, in the Islamic world as well. Um, Okay, now I want to try and catch us up on some of the details that we didn't get into in the episode for, uh, you know, time constraints and, and coherence constraints, but some of the conflicts that we talk about uh, in the episode, some of the actors, like the emirs, uh, like the Jadid reformers, like the Basmachi rebels in the countryside, there are more than just them. And so maybe you can talk a little bit more about as many as you like, but maybe at least two groups that I was thinking of that didn't get as much airtime in the episode. And that is these Kazakh Alash Orda, but also the Turkmen, because we didn't really talk that much about today's uh, Turkmenistan, as opposed to Turkestan, the Russian uh, administrative region. Uh, but there were there were nomadic Turkmen and they were up to stuff at the time as well. So why don't you give us just a bit more about uh, about those other groups?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think those two groups really illustrate the, uh, the full breadth of uh, conflict you could find yourself in if you were in this region at the time. So the Alash Orda are, um, like we were saying, a Kazakh and Kyrgyzik reformist group. Um, so they are similar to the Jadids in the sense of they're having this conversation of, you know, does Islam fit in, um, the Khazats are still very nomadic. Um, so where does nomadism fit in, you know, they have a far more antagonist relationship with the Russians than the Jadids did because the Jews are mostly Uzbekistan, uh, Uzbek, and so they don't have the same uh, source of conflict as the Khazats do because the Kazakh lands are the ones that are really being stolen and, um, you know, repurposed for Russian purposes as opposed to um, how the Tazets have lived for thousands and thousands of years. However, the difference is, is, that while the Jadids were more focused again on the Islamic reform and just a more cultural approach to um, reforming the region, the Tazets were very, maybe a little bit more practical because they were more concerned of how do we get our land back? How do we make sure that we have political power to, um, to prevent these, you know, Trent Russia from coming in and and just taking what they want. Um, And so they're more focused on like the political side of it. And so they actually do create a national party um, in 1905. And when uh, the Russian revolution happens, the the Muslims in the area hold a convention to figure out what do we do um, now that this has happened. And the it's listen to what the Jitis are are, um, suggesting and for whatever reason, whether bad blood or they just didn't, Buy whatever the Gizeeds were selling, they decided to go off on their own. They go back to the steps and they create an autonomous state within the steps. Um, unfortunately, though, that quickly becomes the center of a lot of conflict between the White Army and the Red Army. So the Alash, Orda are creating, they actually do create a government. It's somewhat functional. They're able to collect s- some taxes from the population. Um, when the White Army comes in, they make a deal with the White Army. The White Army will uh, support basically fund the government if the Alash order give men to help fight the Bolsheviks. Um, But they're also making overtures to Lenin and Stalin. You're basically asking, like, we create this autonomous zone. If you win, would you recognize it? Um, And Stalin and Lenin are a little bit more amenable to that. When they take the same office to the White Army, like we had mentioned before, the White Army's like, no, you can have cultural autonomy, but we don't care about political autonomy. So they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, And then by October 1919, the Red Army breaks through this blockade that was developed at Orenburg. Um, they defeat the White Army. And so the, the Alash Orda have to go to the Red Army and, and you know, basically beg for mercy because they had been fighting against them with the Whites. Um, and at this point, the Bolsheviks are very pragmatic. Um, and so they do offer um, amnesty to all the Alash Order members. They help them create a Kursuit a uh, Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic um, that lasts until like 1921, I think. Um, and they kind of just leave them be. Um, but as what happens everywhere else in this region, later the, the, the Socialists will come back and um, turn that, that area into both Kazakhstan and it stand and, it stand and, and uh, enforce a more communist way of life on this region. So for a bright moment, I think they're a powerful player in the area. Um, but events just erode whatever, whatever power they had and they're at the mercy of the the Russian army. Um, and then you mentioned the Turkmen and the Turkmen are interesting because they are kind of on this, this other spectrum in terms of being able to organize and be able to, um, offer like a coherent policy or a coherent vision of the future. So, the Alash Orda and then the Jadids—they benefit because their society is both sedentary and nomadic, and, you st- and so like you have these centers of intellectual activities in like Bukhara and Kiva and Samarkand. Uh, the Turkmen provide kind of the other side of the spectrum because whereas um, with the Alash Orda and the Jadids, um, who had they um, they had the benefit of having both a sedentary society. And a nomadic society. So, you had the cultural elites were able to focus in areas like Bukhara and Kiva and Samarkand. The Turkmen are far more nomadic. And so, you don't have the formation of actual political parties like you do with the Alash Orda or even a cultural movement like Jadid. But they suffered um, the same. Um, excursions into their lands as the Cossets did. So they had plenty of reason to be upset and to take advantage of the power vacuum that's created following the Russian Revolution, but they don't have the organizational um, structure or ability to kind of create their own movement. So really what they do is that they they fill the ranks of the Basmachi and um, what becomes Turkmenistan in the future becomes fertile recruiting ground for the Basmachi, and it's not until it really, um, it's not until 1931 when the Russians are able to fully um, suppress that part of Central Asia do you see the threat of the Basmachi disappear completely. Um, so they're basically just opportunists. that are jumping at different conflicts to get their own aggression out and their own grievances out and to deal with the chaos that's happening. And then as 1920 um, progresses, and the options kind of limit themselves. They really throw themselves into the Basachi cause and uh, really provide the backbone for that movement later into the nineteen forties.
0: Okay, fascinating. And these are not the only groups, uh, folks. I mean, we haven't even gotten into like the whole... Persian-influenced side of the region and so on. Um, but I suppose we'll have to save that for another digestible bite sometime in the future. Um, so let's get to maybe the last question of the podcast for today, which is one that both Flo and I are kind of excited to hear more about. And it's a maybe in a way a little foreshadow for 1921. Can you tell us a little bit about why Enver Pasha of Ottoman Empire fame and infamy, perhaps, uh, shows up in Central Asia in 1921. What is he doing there?
2: Yeah, um, Enver Pasha is an interesting figure um, in this region. So he, I think you talked about this a little bit, or you will talk about this a little bit, but he he basically pushed out Turkey because of Mustafa Kemal. And he kind of doesn't have a place to go. And so I've read two different reasons of how he ends up in Moscow. One is Lenin actually invites him. And the other is that he goes there because at this point, the Bolsheviks are really just, you know, anti whatever you don't like. <laughs> Basically, you can kind of make this story for yourself that they're anti-colonialism, they're anti the West, you know, things of that nature. So he ends up going to Moscow. And at some point, Lenin realizes that they can use him or they think they can use him in Bukhara and um, against the Basmachi. So he's sent to Bukhara and he decides instead that he's going to change sides and help the Pesmachi. And uh, I've I've read a couple of reasons of why he does this, but I think it's because he still believes in this pan-Turkic vision. And I think we talked about this a little bit in the episode, but the Turkic identity is in Turkey or in Ottoman Lands and the Turkic identity in Central Asia are two very, very different things. Um, but Enver Pasha just doesn't understand this, and so he thinks that he's saying join the Basmachi, he's going to liberate the region from you know the evil Russians, and we're going to revive this this Turkic, you know, civilization, um, which is centered around the Ottoman identity, not the Central Asian identity. And he actually he does um, revitalize the Basmachi because. Um, like you said, 1920, Bukhara falls and you have the emir who's now in, in Tajikistan waiting for permission to go into Afghanistan and the Basbachi kind of around him. But they're not organized. They are not well supplied. You know, they still have the same problems that they had in 1919 and early 1920. Pasha, Umber Pasha comes in and he reorganizes them and he gives them a Western style command and he uses his reputation. And again, like these calls for like an Islamic you know, ruler of leadership and, you know, anti-Bolshevik cause to to rally men around him. And, it, you know, the the number ranges from like 3,000 to 30,000 pasmachi that joined because he's now leading this movement. And he's able to, in 1922, he's able to take uh, most of the, of the Bukharan state, so not Bukhara itself, but all the land around Bukhara, and then Dush, uh, Dushanby, uh, Dushabai, which is in uh, what is now Tajikistan. Tz- um, and he's, he's starting to regularize communications and he's making contact with Afghanistan for new supplies. And so by summer of 1922, he's become enemy number one for the Bolsheviks and he's a serious threat for their hold in Central Asia. Um, and then the Bolsheviks have to, to plan some sort of response. And I don't want to give anything else away. Uh, but that's kind of what he's doing. In that the is a
0: major teaser for potentially more than one future episode on the Great War in 2021 and 2022. Um, no, that's fascinating how, especially how I, I always find it interesting since learning about this, how there are these divergent appeals to the Turkic tradition in uh, the Ottoman vision and in the vision, in this case, primarily of these Uzbek uh, jadids, right, who are drawing on a different Turkish emphasis, Turkic emphasis, let's say. Um, Right. Well. Thank you so much, Sam, for sharing your expertise uh, in this region with us. It's obviously a region that is uh, kind of new to us at the channel in some ways. And uh, it's new to, I'm sure, some of our listeners. And I hope that uh, our discussion today has been able to throw a bit more light on that. Uh, It certainly did for me. So thank you for that. Before we uh, finish up with our discussion today. I mentioned right off the top that you are also the host of another podcast called The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. So if any of the people listening out there today want to uh, get a hold of your podcast and listen to it, how should they do so? Where can they find it?
2: Uh, Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, You can find it on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, any of your normal uh, podcast providers. And I also have a website slash blog, um, www.samswarroom.com, where I post the podcast as well as supplementary materials.
0: Okay. We'll, we'll throw that link up uh, as well. Right then. uh, Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today and uh, we appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Thank you. It was a pleasure.